Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here again. Um, slept well, I trust. Ready for another session um, around the Word of God and at the foot of the cross of our Lord. When we were looking at the um, principles yesterday, uh, we ended up with this slide that um, the principles we talked about on Sunday boil down to the idea that Jesus was a human being just like us. He shared in our humanity. Uh, There was no fundamental difference between who he was and who we are. Then when we talked yesterday, we were focusing very much on the purpose of the work of Jesus, particularly the the death of, of our Lord, was there not to change something about God, not to make something in God's universe different, but it was there to affect us, to, to change us, to, to alter the way that we live our lives. And we contrasted this with the um, theory of substitution, which is um, popular in Christianity at large, And the theory of substitution says there was a debt to be paid that required the literal spilling of blood, the literal giving of a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus paid that debt. And we, we, in order to really try and show what substitution was trying to say, we use that parable of the father with the two sons going to the circus. But one of the things that we notice about that parable is that When the father takes the younger son to the circus, the younger son is no different than he was before. He's just the same misbehaving little kid. Nothing was accomplished. And so that's the problem with substitution. Substitution says that the father has the problem. The father is the one that's in the technical bind and that the sacrifice, whether it's the not going to the circus or the death of of Christ, is there to get the Father out. That's substitution, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is nothing wrong with God, that He has set up the world in a way which is true and right and just, and that the challenge is with us. The, The change is required from us. So we talked about that change meter, remembering not to put the needle over to say God's got to change, but to shift it over and make sure that whenever we're looking at various scriptures, we understand that it's we who have to change, that the work of Jesus was to change us, to make us different, to alter us, not to change God, not to bring God closer to us, but to bring us closer to God. We had the play last night. Don't know um, how many of you uh, saw beyond the just the fun of seeing your friends gooning about, as as, uh, as I suspect it came across to. But did you see beyond that? Did you see the allegory that was there worked in the story? Um, when Michael contacted me about six months ago, I guess, to say we're thinking of doing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a play, <laughs> I, I emailed back to him and I said, "You've got to be kidding me." 
Um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you go and read the original story, it's a classic substitution tale. Because what happens in C.S. Lewis's original is that Edmund is forfeit to the queen and that the deep magic of Narnia says that um, he has to give his life. He's a traitor, and the traitors belong to the queen. And what Aslan does in the original C.S. Lewis story is he says, I will die in Edmund's place, and I will die so that you no longer have, um, uh, so that you, uh, no longer have Edmund to kill. And so he literally dies instead of Edmund. It's, a, as I say, a classic substitution story. And so Michael was saying, well, do you think it's, it's repairable? And I said, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's repairable at all. And, and yet what we noticed in the final play that came, and it was a, a number of iterations, the, um, the various people who were working on it and made changes and said, this is the way that we're thinking of presenting it, and had taken large parts of the substitution theme out and replaced it with much more something that is appropriate for a, a, a biblical echo. And so finally, we, I, I, I think that's actually, I don't know if you've got plans to distribute the, the final script, but I, I would recommend it because um, taking the contrast of the final script with what C.S. Lewis originally wrote, I think is, is going to be a very instructive exercise. Because in the final script, there's some beautiful little cameos. There's Edmund and Aslan talking, if you recall, where Edmund is, is ashamed of what he's done, ashamed of who he is. And Aslan says, you know, I'm not so different from you. And, and that's, of course, one of the fundamental principles that we've been talking about. And then when, um, when Aslan is wondering whether to, to go through with the, the uh, event at the stone table, and I think it's Susan asks a question like, um, can't we go against the deep truth of Narnia? That the deep truth is essentially that the wages of sin is death. And Aslan turns and says, what? Go against the thing that is right? You see, the wages of sin is death is a true principle. It's a good principle. It's one that God has established. And it's not one that can simply be, be moved aside. And we'll be talking a lot more about this tomorrow as to why it's a good principle, why it's a fundamental principle of eternity. We can't go against the thing that God has established. But what happens in the play is that Aslan goes through, he allows himself to be killed and rises again from the dead and confronts the queen and says, you didn't realize that even before the establishment of the um, principle of sin and death, the principle of love and forgiveness was already there built into the world. It's an even deeper truth than the truth that the wages of sin is death. And so through the... the um, uh, commitment of Aslan. And again, we're going to come to the notion of what is the um, resurrection all about and why is the resurrection important. Through the commitment of Aslan in that allegory, uh, we saw the opportunity of him then leading the people uh, to, to their restitution. So it's a great play. I, I actually found it very moving. I know there were lots of people just laughing around me. <laughs> At the same time, I had tears running down my face. So I suspect there's going to be a wide range of uh, uh, responses in the audience. So let's move on to, um, to today's study. 
Um, we're about halfway through our process. The um, principles of salvation, we talked about the humanity of Christ. Yesterday we talked about changing us, not God. Today we're going to focus on the idea that Jesus gave his life. What does it mean that Jesus gave his life? And then we've got a break tomorrow as we're out at the beach. And then um, the rest of the week we're going to look at faith, forgiveness, the process of salvation, Jesus himself as a savior and as a judge, two sides of the same coin, and finally the present work of Jesus. Just before we move on to um, gave his life, I'd like to just say a couple of words about covering. We, we ended up very briefly at the end of yesterday talking about the covering, and we looked at Adam and Eve and the situation there in Genesis. And um, one of the things that we... Uh, I guess it's almost in the folklore of Christadelphia, is that um, when God provided the skins, it was because he required a blood sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that that's not the case, and I'm not saying that it is the case, but do you notice that Scripture doesn't actually tell us that? Scripture just says that God provided skins for Adam and Eve to wear. Now, Of course, those skins came from a dead animal, so that's a a reasonable implication. But it doesn't say why God replaced the fig leaves with the skins. So our standard view is often that, well, it needed the death of an animal to show them the magnitude of what they had done. That may be the case. But I suspect an equally plausible view is that even though they had covered themselves with fig leaves, they were still dissatisfied with the shielding of their nakedness. They still felt naked before God. And so when he was walking in the garden, they hid themselves. I don't know if you've ever tried wearing clothing made of fig leaves, but um, it's probably not the most um, modest, one one might say. Um, And so what God did is said, you're afraid of appearing before me. Let me give you something that will cover up your shame Not so that I don't know that you're ashamed. Not so that I don't know what you're really like underneath. I know exactly what you're like. But so that you can have confidence that I'm taking into account who you really are. That I understand how you feel. That I'm providing you with something that gives you confidence. And so we see a tremendous contrast with Adam and Eve from before that time when they're hiding to after that time when they're actually now prepared to commune with God and um, uh, see how they can uh, establish the relationship and worship him, and we start getting into the uh, whole of Genesis 4 and the continuation of their existence. So covering, um, I've become convinced, is not there in order that God looks on us differently, because that would be akin to God play-acting. Covering is there so that we feel differently when we come to God. Do you see the distinction that I'm making? It's about the effect it has on us. It's not about the effect it has on God. So anyway, let's now move to today's study, which is gave his life. So here's the uh, first principle for today, which is that Jesus gave the whole of his life to save us. When we use the phrase, he gave his life, we have a tendency to think that means he died that Jesus gave his life, that Jesus died for us. And I'd like to emphasize that the phrase, gave his life, is much richer than that. 
It's not just about Calvary. It's about giving every aspect of his life. What part of Jesus' life is there that was not focused on our salvation? None of it. Everything he did, everything he said, everywhere he went, all of it was focused on our salvation. The teachings that he gave, the way that he showed his life, the the things that he did day by day, he gave all of his life in order to save us. It wasn't just about Calvary. Calvary was the culmination. Calvary was the, um, the pinnacle. But it wasn't um, the, the fundamental piece itself. He gave the whole of his life in order to save us. And I'd like to see some examples of that. Let's start in the chapter that we just read, John chapter 10 and verse 11. This is the um, parable that Jesus is talking about of the sheep and the shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he talks about the hired hand. It's not the shepherd who owns the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, verse 12, he abandons the sheep, runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand, cares nothing about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. This is the wolf. This is the wolf that is coming in to savage the flock. So what does the shepherd do when he sees this wolf coming? Does he say, I know what I'll do. I'll walk towards the wolf and I'll lie down and I'll let the wolf eat me and it'll be full and it will walk away. I mean, that, that, that's stupid. It's not the death of the shepherd which is the point. It's the battle that is the point. The shepherd goes out and he confronts the wolf head-on in battle. And in overcoming the wolf, the shepherd dies. His death is not the intent. His death is a consequence. His death is a mark of the commitment to the battle that he has. Do you see the point? It's not that the shepherd has to die. It's that the shepherd fights such a fierce battle to the death. And in the end, even though it costs him his life, he will protect his sheep. And so he confronts the wolf. He goes out and meets those fangs in order to protect the sheep who are terrified behind him. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. This is the meaning of the parable. We've seen the first part of this verse before. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Well, we know that now. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now, I don't want to get into um, a first principle conversation here about what is the devil. I'm assuming that we can take that for read, that the devil um, is sin within us. It's the tendency within us to lead astray from God. It's the collective tendency that happens when we get together that leads large groups of people to rebel against the rulership of God. What Jesus did in the battle, in that battle throughout his life 
and ultimately in Calvary, was confronted the devil within. The same force that is in each of us, the same tendency that is in each of us, he had in himself, and he confronted it head on. And that tendency that is within you, that tendency that's within me, holds the power of death over us. It's that tendency that will potentially consign us to eternal oblivion. And it's that tendency in Jesus that potentially would assign him to eternal oblivion. And what he said is, I am going to confront this. Day by day by day, I am going to confront this tendency. I am going to get into battle with this tendency until the day came when that battle cost him his life. Not my will, but your will be done. And we're in a situation where that battle has never brought us to the point of requiring our life physically to be shed. But for brothers and sisters through the ages, that battle has come to that point. And our brothers and sisters at various points have had to decide whether they too are willing to confront the devil within, the tendency to sin, to the point of death. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I did this. I want you to be doing it as well. And so Jesus entered into battle and overcame. He destroyed that tendency within himself. He expressed the will of his Father in everything he did. And now, death has no hold over him. He's won the battle, and he's now able to continue to save his sheep. A couple of chapters later on in John, there's another example, John chapter 12, and this is another of Jesus' parables about Um, his work, uh, in particular his death. John 12 and verse... Let's pick it up at verse 23. John 12, 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So there's that parable of the seed, and he says, you put a seed in the ground, and it dies, and it produces a plant. Now, here's an important thing. It's not the death of the seed that is important here. If you get a seed and kill it by putting it in the oven or or some other way of destroying its life force and then putting it in the ground, nothing will happen. It's not the death of the seed that is the point. It's the giving of the life of the seed. What happens is you put a living seed in the ground and that seed gives all of its life into the creation of the plant until there's none left and the seed is dead. Do you see the point? It's not that the death of the seed is, is the 
reason or the, the goal, the death of the seed is a consequence of the commitment of the seed to creating the plant. And so the seed creates the plant. The seed gives its life into the plant, and the plant lives, and the seed dies as a consequence. And so Jesus says that that's true of him, that if he were just to remain a single seed, nothing would happen. But he goes into the ground, he dies, and in the process of dying, gives his life to the plant that grows. And so there are many more of us than there was originally. So let's, let's explore the, the ways in which Jesus um, puts the whole of his life force into our salvation, into giving us life. And I've got a few examples here from the life of Jesus. Uh, the first one, Mark chapter 5, is the example of, of Jairus' daughter. And let me just um, uh, show a, a an example here of some of the things that Jesus is doing during his ministry in order to give life. He's giving of himself so that others may grow, so that others may become closer to God. And so Jairus comes to him and says, my, my little girl, my 12-year-old girl is very ill. Please come before she dies. And so Jesus comes with him. And they're starting to walk to, to the place. And the crowd is all around him. You, you remember the story, I'm sure. The crowd is all around him. And in the midst of this, a lady comes up who has been um, some bleeding problem that she's had for 40 years. And, and she reaches forward and, and just touches the hem of his garment. And we read in the Scripture that Jesus feels the strength coming out of him. So that's one of the points I want to make. When Jesus did the work that he did, it was not free of cost to him. It wasn't that there was some legal bargain that he had to pay. It just cost him energy. It cost him effort. It cost him strength. There were times when he was exhausted and people would come to him and he would get himself up in his exhaustion because he loved them and he had compassion for them. And so we're now in a situation here where Jesus, I'm sure, would have felt Jairus' distress going to heal Jairus' daughter, and then this woman touches him, and now he's got two situations to deal with. He feels strength going out, and he knows it's not enough just to leave that woman simply physically healed. She needs to be spiritually healed as well. And so he turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples said, what are you talking about? Who touched you? Everybody's touching you. No, I felt strength come out of me. Who touched me? And she's emboldened. And she stands up and says, it was me. And she's ashamed. She is worried that she was here, that she was presumptuous to take what the law of Moses described as uncleanness into the midst of a crowd. But he sees her And he reaches out and touches her and says, your faith has healed you. He lifts her up. He provides her with confidence. He provides her with what she needs to be able to go on. And at the same time that this is going on, can you imagine what Jairus is doing? Can you imagine how Jairus feels while he's dealing with this woman? My daughter is dying. 
Can't you sort this out later? And then the worst news possible. Servants come from his house and says, it's too late. Don't bother the teacher anymore. We know in other parts of Jesus' life just the tremendous compassion and empathy that he had for those around him. Imagine the distress that's in Jairus at that point and that distress that is echoed within our Lord as he sees this father devastated by the loss of his daughter. And then Jesus somehow, somehow gathers up more strength and turns to Jairus and says, don't fear, I'll come anyway. And what Jesus realized was that there was an important lesson, not just in taking care of Jairus, not just in reaching out to him, but in us. That he wants us to realize that his compassion to one of us is never at the cost to the other. Just because Jesus turns to help this woman doesn't mean that Jairus and his daughter are going to have to bear the cost of that. It's not too late. And the child was dying, and now she's dead. But Jesus will still turn and find the strength within him to go there. And he comes to the house, and the mourners are there, and he says that the child is sleeping. And they laugh him, laugh him to scorn. But again, here is our Lord with the commitment to to those around him, the commitment to us to go in, to reach down and to touch that little girl. Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she arises. This is the kind of man our Lord was. Time and time and time again, the commitment to those around him to provide for their need to give of himself. And in the midst of giving of himself to one, to suddenly give of himself to another, and another, and another. And all the time to have his, his mind on those that will come after, that will, be, will hear of this in, in the, the years and the months and the years after, the centuries after, until we're sitting here today and we too can be moved by the compassion of this man who gave himself who gave himself for those around him. Matthew 8, verse 20, somebody says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want to, wherever you're staying. I'll I'll stay there as well. He says, "I, I don't actually have anywhere to stay. That's one that challenges me. So I put energy and effort into career, into establishing home and job and those kinds of things. And I look at Jesus, who put zero effort into that. And it wasn't because he knew he could leech off other people. It was that he knew his Father would provide for him. And if providing for him meant that he went a week without food and shelter, well, that's the provision his Father has provided. For Jesus, our salvation was a full-time job. He devoted all of his energy into it. He didn't marry. He didn't have children. He didn't have a job. He didn't have a house. All the didn't-haves 
because he gave his life to your salvation and to mine. This one in in Mark 10 is um, when um, Jesus assures the disciples. Peter says, you know, we've, we've left everything, what of us? He assures the disciples that no one who has left father or mother or brothers or sisters or lands and so on, so on, for my sake, will fail to gain more. Now, if somebody like me was to say that, you could validly say, you're a hypocrite because you haven't left this and this and this and this. But nobody could say that to Jesus, who had given all of that up. His mother and his brothers were estranged from him. He had no lands. The the work that he used to do as a carpenter growing up, he had left that behind. He had no income. He had nothing, and yet he had everything. He gave his life in his ministry, in his preaching for those around him. And so when we talk about Jesus giving his life, let's not just think about Calvary as if it's some mechanistic transaction, as if there's some process that snap takes place there on on that hill of agony. That was the culmination. That was the, the, the pinnacle of what he had done. That was the pinnacle of over 30 years of commitment. We talked the other day about imagine a child prodigy on the piano and the commitment that that child must have put hours and hours and hours of practice every day into being able to achieve that level of skill. And we we look at Jesus, and we see his sinlessness, and we wonder, why was it possible for him, and it doesn't seem possible for us? Well, ask the same question about the child prodigy at the piano. Why is it possible for that child and not for me? And it's something to do with the level of commitment. Look at Jesus as a 12-year-old there in the temple. He knows his Bible. He knows his Bible incredibly. And so these scholars of the law are astounded at his answers. He doesn't feel like a 12-year-old to them. He feels like one of them. He's able to communicate with them at the level of somebody who has studied for years and years and years because he has studied for years and years and years, and taken in the Spirit, taken in the mind of his Father. And he's gone beyond the simple rule, do this, don't do that, to understand the point of the rules, to understand the purpose of the law of Moses. So when he's there in the Sabbath, and he's in the grain fields with his disciples, and and they take the ears of the corn and, and they rub them, and the Pharisees say, aha, you're breaking a rule, he says, The Sabbath was designed to give us rest. We weren't designed in order to fill out the regulations of the Sabbath. You've got it the wrong way around. He understands the law. He understands the principles behind because he gave his life to righteousness. He gave his life to our salvation. And I've got a dot, dot, dot at the end because there's lots of other examples. And perhaps if your discussion group is um, uh, looking for something to discuss, one of the things you might like to think of is what are some good examples of ways in which Jesus gave his life for us? And there are many, there are many. You could, you could talk about this for hours. And each one of them has a kind of exhortation contained within it. But 
even apart from the exhortational element, there's the, it just grows the depth and the wealth and of the effort that our Lord put in to our salvation. He gave the whole of His life for us. So I'd like to change tack at this point and think now about the death itself. When we talked about the seed, we realized that it was important that the seed was living when it, died, when, when it was planted, that planting a dead seed is no good. A dead shepherd going out to the wolf is no good. It has to be living, and it's actually the conflict. It's actually the growing of the plant which is the important point. The death in both cases, is a side effect, is a consequence, is an unfortunate consequence which marks the commitment, the level of commitment on the, on the part of the shepherd or on the part of the seed. And I'd like us to have that same view now as we think about Calvary. I'd like to argue to you that the death of Jesus was not the point. The death of Jesus was the consequence of something God had asked him to do. And the thing that God had asked him to do was to be put himself in the power of people like us. And the consequence was that we murdered him. People like us chose to murder him. God did not want his son dead. God was willing for us to kill his son. Do you see the distinction? If the people had chosen not to kill Jesus, it's not that God would have sent an angel to kill him. That would have not been the point at all. The point was to demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. And so let's explore some of that. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Absolutely fascinating verse. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It's one of these verses that we're going to just read um, half of, and we'll, we'll pick up the other half later on. We'll read the whole thing. He was delivered over to death for our sins, was raised to life for our justification. The second half of that verse, we'll, we'll, we'll pass over the raised to life, we'll come back to that in a minute, talks about justification. So, being delivered over to death for our sins, presumably, is something other than our justification. Because it talks about the raising to life for our justification. It seems to me that what it's saying is, he was killed because of our sin, as a direct consequence of our sin. He was raised to life in order to justify us. And do you notice how different that is from a notion of substitution, which talks about he died in order to make us righteous? This verse is saying he died as a, as a confrontation with our sin. And so Jesus is there, placed by his Father in the power of religious people. Let's not forget that. Of religious people who have spent their lives studying his word, many of them, perhaps even most of them, honestly trying to figure out how to serve him, put Jesus in the midst of them, and people like us choose to kill him. And if that doesn't shock us when we think about it, if that doesn't shock us, then something is wrong. 
What it's saying is that if we brought a man like Jesus into maybe even this group, maybe we wouldn't put him on a cross. But it's quite possible we might miss who he was and reject him and tease him, send him away empty-handed. He was rejected by men, despised by us. But we thought he was smitten by God, afflicted by him. Put Jesus in that context, and you see the sinfulness of sin, raw sin with murderous intent, putting him to death. See, sometimes we have the idea that sin isn't so bad, really. It's only a little bit of a sin. It's not so serious. And what the death of Christ shows us is the utter depravity of sin, the utter sinfulness of sin. Let's look at Isaiah 53, um, chapter that you all know Uh, no doubt. There's actually um, a particular point that I want to take out of this chapter. Verse 3, of course, he was despised, rejected by men, man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like uh, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I think we have to be careful with this verse, because remember I talked about the notion of of interpreting words in the way that our minds usually interpret them. So if we take that, that verse and say that our sins were laid on Jesus, we might have the sense that God in some sense had this transaction where he said, okay, you all are sinners, I'm going to take your sin, put it on Jesus, and then beat him up. That's substitution. It doesn't mean that. We've already seen that substitution is against the uh, other teachings of Scripture. Now, actually, this word laid is, uh, I've got an alternative verse, face. It's about two things coming together. It's the same word that's translated later in the chapter, make intercession. It's two things coming together. Make intercession is a terrible translation as well of it. So the idea really is two facing each other. And what it says is the Lord, Yahweh, made Jesus face our iniquity. Face to face with our iniquity. He was no longer held at a distance from our sin, but our sin was there in his face, destroying his body. Sinners like us took him and nailed him to a cross. And in fact, as I say, the same word is there in the end of the chapter, for he bore the sin of many. I think the idea there is he bore the brunt of the sin of many. And um, my version has made intercession for the transgressors, bad translation, the idea is faced, and faced the transgressors. He came face to face with those who wanted to destroy, and God had placed him in their power. And all too often, we're placed, we or others who who may be trying to follow God, are placed in the power 
of those who, who want to destroy. Um, if you think about the case, for example, of, of someone like Job, Job was placed in the power of his opponent, his enemy, who was able to wreak all sorts of havoc on Job's life. We might say, how is that fair? But you know what? You are in the power of other people in this room who have power over you to hurt you, to harm you. You have other people in your power. It's no different. How do you use that power? How do you treat one another? And what the death of Christ tells us is that sin is so destructive. We're left with no, no excuses, no claim that says, well, I was only teasing him. I know he burst into tears, but he shouldn't have taken it so seriously. Jesus says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, you fool, is in danger of Gehenna. Jesus knows the relationship between the little things and the big things. And so he shows us by coming, by dying, the sinfulness of sin. Take the most beautiful man that this world has ever seen, the loveliest, the most compassionate man that has ever walked this earth, and put him in the midst of religious people. And what do we do with him? So I'd like to summarize some of the things that we've gained here when we're trying to say, why did Jesus die? Very fundamental, very basic question. So the, um, the first of these, uh, we talked about right from the uh, earliest. He died in order to show what complete obedience to God looks like. He gave all of his life. He said, I go that the world must learn that I love my Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Obedience is possible. Righteousness is possible. If we go out from this school next week and say, you know what, it's not possible to be righteous, then it won't be possible. But if you go out saying, Jesus has shown that righteousness is possible, and I want to demonstrate it in my life, then at least it becomes possible. Now you'll fail, but there's forgiveness for that. But the commitment needs to be there, and this is what we see with him. He died so that we would know what complete commitment to God looks like, complete obedience to God. And there's actually a, a second element of this. It's not simply to show us. In the same process, he was actually perfecting himself, completing himself. And we're going to come on with this in the um, fifth study uh, when we talk about, sorry, the uh, fourth study, um, when we talk about Jesus as the Savior judge and the role that, for him, going through the agony, right through to ultimately Calvary and beyond, the effect that that had on him personally in his development. Complete obedience to God was, was profound, both for what it says to us and for what it said to him. Another thing he did 
was he died in order to show the complete and utter sinfulness of sin. We can be in no doubt as to what sin is like. We can't go from this place and say, you know what, sin isn't so bad after all. When I say that, take the most beautiful man and put him in front of a, a, a group of religious people, I'm not saying this shows that religious people are worse than non-religious people, not at all. This is a group of people who are at least trying to do what is right. We see the sinfulness of sin just in the recent tsunami. Towns are devastated, and then in the remains that are left, the looters go around. And they take advantage of the weakness and the loss of other people. Ah, yes, but we're civilized, aren't we? We would never do that. We would never take advantage of someone else, of someone else's weakness. And then there are many more, and we'll start adding some more here as we go through the week. Um, Again, discussion groups might be quite fun to speculate as to what some others are here. There's lots of things that we could write down here. The, The death of Christ was such a pinnacle, such a powerful event that um, it's, uh, there, there's lots of things that it, it's speaking to us. So, uh, again, discussion groups, feel free to add things um, in, in that point. So, the question is, does it make a difference to us? If he died in order to change us, not to change God, does it change us? Are we just sitting here thinking, oh yeah, this is an interesting theory, this is an interesting way of looking at it, or not really interested in any of this at all? Put your mind and your heart where Jesus is, and then ask yourself whether him committing himself throughout his whole life, right to the end, does that have an effect? And I'm not just talking to the unbaptized people wondering whether you might be baptized. I'm talking to the baptized people as well. Is it still changing you? Is it still making a difference in your life? Baptism is a start. It's the baby being born. That baby has to grow. You have to exercise muscles. You have to develop And looking at the life and the work of our Lord and the way that He has committed Himself to us is prime sustenance. Is it making a difference? So finally, in the last few minutes that I've got, I'd like to come to another principle which is um, kind of astonishing at first, but the Scripture very clearly teaches that the resurrection of Jesus is as important as His death in order to bring salvation to us. And we'll start in that verse that we looked at in Romans, Romans um, chapter 4 and verse 25. That that interesting um, uh, duality, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Died because of we were sinners because sinners chose to kill him. A free choice was given them, and they chose to kill him. Raised in order to save us. So it, it's almost sounding as if it's saying that the death itself wasn't the thing that saves us. 
actually, let's, let's move on to Corinthians, and we'll see that Paul says that about as plainly as he can. This is a verse that um, we all know, I'm sure. It's uh, Corinthians 15. It's one of those verses, classic chapter for us to look at for resurrection. But there's an astonishing verse there in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. What's it saying? It's saying that without the resurrection of Jesus, your sins have not been forgiven. Now, if any verse could put a a, a nail in the coffin of substitution, that's surely a verse. Substitution teaches that it's the act of the death of Jesus that brought us life, that that suddenly enabled us to, to have our debt paid. No, says Paul, if Christ died and stayed dead, you are still in your sins. Nothing has happened. Nothing is different. Your sins are still on you. And I think the reason is that, as I've been trying to say again and again and again, the death of Jesus is not some mechanical or mystical transaction whereby when His blood is spilled, we are suddenly freed from debts or anything like that. That's not how the death of Christ works. The death of Christ is the pinnacle of His complete devotion to our salvation, and that devotion to our salvation continues after His resurrection. Let's look at a couple of other verses just to check that these aren't um, uh, strange verses that I'm taking out of context. This is actually worth um, looking at each of them. Romans 10 and verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now again, on the face of it, that seems as though it's saying, here's a, mecha- here's a mechanical process. Confess Jesus, believe it, boom, you're saved. But Scripture doesn't teach salvation like that. Scripture is teaching that if you accept Jesus as Lord, if you now know that He is risen from the dead, and I think what it's, the implication is able to help you, then, through all of that working in your life, you will indeed be saved. But we'll come to that later. The key part that I'm wanting to get from here is the importance of the resurrection that Paul is putting here. It's not just that if you believe that he died for your sins. It doesn't say that. It's if you believe that God raised him from the dead. Look at 1 Peter 3. Again, very well-known verse. This is uh, one of the baptism verses. talks about um, Noah going through the flood. Um, Eight people saved. Verse 21 of 1 Peter 3. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So Noah going through the flood, symbol of us going through the waters of baptism. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And I love the way the NIV puts this. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not, it saves you by the death of Jesus Christ. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 verse 10, 
Again, I, I, at one sense, I apologize for belaboring the point, but it's really important to see the emphasis of Scripture on this, that the resurrection of Jesus was a fundamental part of our salvation. Philippians 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice that when he talks about the death, he talks about understanding, about sharing, about being able to be like Him, being willing to give His life. Take up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. But when he talks about the resurrection, he says, I want to know the power of the resurrection, to see what effect it has for me, to see how the resurrection changes me, what, what uh, effect it has in my life. Then the final scripture that we're going to look at is this one in John 14, verse 19. And the reason I underlined this and exclamation marks on it is it's just incredibly simple and yet profound. It's the end of the verse, John 14, verse 19. Literally the last seven words of the verse. Because I live, you also will live. It's not because I die, you will live. It's because I live, you also will live. So we've got a consistent message from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter, that the resurrection is as important to the whole process of salvation as his death. So again, a great question for us to ponder in discussions is, what role does his resurrection play? Why is it so important? Why is it critical that Jesus rose from the dead? What effect does that have on the whole process of salvation? So let me just finish by reviewing the principles that we've, we've looked at today. The first is that when we say Jesus gave his life, let's bear in mind that he gave the whole of his life to save us. It's not simply a case that he died. To give his life is not the same as saying he died. Planting a dead seed is useless. Being dead in front of the wolf is useless. He gave his life over to our salvation. He died to demonstrate the sinfulness of sin. God put him in the power of people not so different from us, and they killed him. Let's not have any false imagination about what sin is like. And the final one was that Scripture teaches abundantly that his resurrection is as important as his death. And we'll pick up on that in a later study and see why. But as I say, I'd quite like you to, in your discussion groups, to be thinking about what is it about the resurrection? Why is it so strongly emphasized in so many scriptures? Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.